coming to part three of the question, what is covenant theology, in this series of what does it mean. And so we've been dealing with the subject of covenant theology. And we'll read Romans 5 and verse 19 here in just a moment, but the other verse that we have used as a theme verse for all of this is Hosea 6 and verse 7 that says, but they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. And that word men in Hosea 6, 7, you remember we've looked at that that is the word Adam. But they, like Adam, Adam transgressed the covenant that God made with him. Well, we have also transgressed God's covenant, that covenant of works uh, that we have been learning about. But Romans 5, 19 tells us that for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so we're taught in that verse that there are two primary men at play that God has dealt with over the course of human history. He's dealt with Adam, and he's dealt with Christ. He's dealt with Adam, that one who is the disobedient one, and it is because of Adam's original sin. We are guilty of that original sin. We are sinners, and Adam is, is the one man, and then we have the second Adam, the second man, the last Adam, that being Christ. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And we've also made reference to that verse that tells us that in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we've looked really at that sum and substance of what covenant theology is. It is a hermeneutical framework that we use to interpret the entirety of Scripture. We view the entire Bible as a cohesive unit. We don't view God as constantly shifting gears and coming up with a new plan or, or dealing with humanity in some different way throughout history. God has not changed in his dealings with humanity. He has been consistent in his dealings with humanity. And we see that consistency explained in this, this what I call hermeneutical framework of covenant theology. Hermeneutical just meaning an interpretation of Scripture. Uh, it is an overall interpretation of the Bible. Uh, it's a filter, if you will, as we come to, to study and uh, look at different parts of the Bible we filter it through this hermeneutical framework for our explanation. We're not imposing this framework on the Scriptures. No, we, we believe that we are deriving this framework from the Scriptures itself because it is how God has communicated to us. God has communicated that He deals with humanity through one of these two individuals. He made the covenant with Adam in Genesis Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, what we refer to as the covenant of works. And Adam was the only human being on planet Earth. Eve had not been created yet. Eve was not created until after that covenant had already been made. And so Adam stands as that representative of all of humanity. And the covenant of works was a do this and live, don't do this, and you die. And so there were 
plain terms of that covenant. Well, we've also looked at what we call the covenant of mercy. And so the very first handout, there were two handouts I gave last week. The first handout differentiated the covenant of works and the covenant of mercy. And not to be confusing, but the covenant of mercy is a covenant that is expressed to us in two ways. It's expressed in the covenant of redemption, and it's also expressed in the covenant of grace. They really are the same. That's why we we say the covenant of works and the covenant of mercy. But the covenant of redemption, we're looking at simply from the perspective that it is a covenant that was made inside the Trinity. And Pastor Kimbrough basically preached on this um, last week, uh, right in the aftermath of what we were looking at in Sunday school. He didn't use maybe the exact same terminology, but he was really referring to the same thing. The Father chose a people to save. The Son did that work of redemption. And then the Holy Spirit applied that work that the Son accomplished. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the covenant of redemption, the covenant of mercy, was a covenant that was made before the fall, before creation. In, in, before time began, God entered into this covenant with his Son and with the Spirit. And after the fall, that covenant of mercy was then set in motion. And the covenant of redemption inside the Trinity and then the covenant of grace, that covenant of mercy applied to, revealed to humanity. And we looked at that in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. <coughs> and so we had those two aspects of the covenant. And then last week we began to go through that series of covenants as they were revealed. And what is being revealed is a fuller explanation of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is played out in Scripture through the repetition of the terms of that covenant and a more full explanation of who the seed of the woman is and who this Redeemer is going to be. And this is all part of this cohesive hermeneutical framework of Scripture that there is a Redeemer to come, and salvation has always been through this Redeemer. There wasn't various dispensations of God saving people in different ways, but there's always only been one way that anybody has ever been saved, that is faith in the Redeemer. The only way we can say that there's been any change is that Abraham had to look forward to a Redeemer. We look back at a Redeemer, but we're both doing the same thing. We're both having faith alone in the only Redeemer of God's elect. And so we looked at the Adamic covenant, and then I got some flack last week, and I'm going to defend myself. The Noachian covenant, not the Noahic, but Noachian, and all this is tongue-in-cheek, right? Um, both are perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with saying it either way. 
But the reason that anyone would ever say Noachian is really because of the Hebrew word for Noah. And we're all saying it wrong. Okay? It's not pronounced Noah in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it would be pronounced Noach. And so at the very end would be a hard CH sound in Hebrew. And so that's where the term Noachian comes from. It's plugging in that hard CH at the end. We pronounce it Noah. That's the way everybody else pronounces it. And so don't sweat it. Don't go around talking about Noach. Nobody will know who you're talking about. That's ridiculous. Just say Noah. It's fine, right? Um, Another thing we mispronounce. After Jericho, there was a famous battle that the Israelites lost. Because you remember, Achan hit his stuff. Where was that battle fought? Okay. Everybody pronounces it Ai. Okay. It's not pronounced that way in Hebrew. It's just I. It was the city of I. There is no long A sound in Hebrew at all. Um, So there you go. Um, Who was Ruth's mother-in-law? Who? No. Nyangyomi, okay? So nobody, this is ridiculous, right? So don't go around talking about Nyangyomi. Nobody will know who you're talking about. So that's where Noachian comes from. So Noachian, Noahic, do what you want. And we all know what we're talking about. But if you have the second, pay, the second uh, thing of notes from last week, we're on number three, the Abrahamic covenant. And so for this, we need to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. And Boaz is Boltonyaz, which, again, nobody says it that way. So, Okay, Genesis 12, we're coming to the Abrahamic covenant. And so by the time we get to Abraham, basically 2,000 years of world history have come and gone. And we're only in Genesis chapter 12. In my Bible, I'm on page 14, right? So we've got 2,000 years of human history have happened in 14 pages, in 12, uh, you know, 11, 11 chapters, and we're already to Abraham. But Genesis 12 and verse 3 really gives us much of the substance of the Abrahamic covenant. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so a few things we learn here from the Abrahamic covenant. I've just put two in your notes. The first one is that this Redeemer is going to come specifically through the line of Abraham. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 27, we read, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And so we see there that Abraham was one of three siblings. And all of those siblings were eventually descendants from whom? Besides Noah and Adam, obviously. Besides Noah, Shem. Because God is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. 
And so we have the genealogy recorded for us of Shem and all of Shem's line. Ham and Japheth, forget about them. Shem's line is delineated for us until we get to this man, Terah. And then Terah has three sons. And we're not told the rest of the stuff about Nahor and Haran, except for Lot. He becomes important later in the overall story of Abraham. But God is paying special attention. He has elected Abraham. And so we're, we're still tracing this Redeemer through the line of Abraham. And then a second thing that's very important for us to learn about the Abrahamic covenant is that the Redeemer will have a universal scope. And so this is a very important point to make because the promise of Christ, the promise of the Redeemer, was never a Jewish promise. Now, why would I say that? Why would I make that particular point? Well, you remember, I I think many of you already know this, that one of the key aspects of classic dispensationalism and we'll study some about dispensationalism later because some questions about that have come up because we're obviously, we have to look at this in some contrast because the reason we emphasize this hermeneutical framework is in opposition to a different hermeneutical framework and that of dispensationalism. But the dispensationalists believe that the cross, Jesus actually dying on the cross, the resurrection, that whole business was plan B. God's original plan, this is classic dispensationalism, the original plan was for Christ, as he was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, to come of age and to establish a kingdom. But there was a glitch in God's plan because he came into his own and his own received him not. And since his own didn't receive him, he had to go to plan B. And plan B was to bring in the Gentiles. And according to classic dispensationalism, the Gentiles were never meant to be brought in under God's original plan. The original plan was the Jews, and and that's all that mattered. Well, when we trace the covenants that God made through Scripture, we see from the very beginning that the scope of the promise of a Redeemer was universal. In Adam, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, here's a pop quiz question for you. Was Adam a Jew? No, Adam wasn't a Jew. Okay, so now God makes a covenant with Noah. Was Noah a Jew? Was Shem a Jew? Okay, a much harder question. Was Abraham a Jew? Abraham wasn't a Jew, technically, right? The the nation of the Hebrews... Uh, really is, doesn't exist at this point. Abraham was not a Jew. I guess we could argue he became the first one, but he wasn't a Jew. But the substance of this promise was, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, even Nahor and Haran's family could be part of this, Abraham's siblings. They are families of the earth that God can bless. And so we make this point of emphasis that the promise of a Redeemer 
was always a universal promise. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of universalism, in that all will be saved. That's not what we mean. But the scope is one that reaches to all of humanity. It wasn't a promise to only save Jews. It was a promise to save all of humanity. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so then we go through the rest of the book of Genesis, and the whole book of Genesis is tracing the lineage, and this promise keeps going through Isaac, through Jacob, eventually turn to Genesis 49. We get to the end of the book in Genesis 49, and we have a renewal of all this promise, Genesis 49 and verse 10, tells us that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And so we learn here that of Abraham's descendants, there was... Isaac, and there was Ishmael. Well, the promise wasn't through Ishmael, even though Ishmael was technically Abraham's firstborn son. The promise wasn't through Ishmael, the promise was through Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. But we're told that the younger, I'm sorry, that the elder will serve the younger. And so it wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. And then Jacob had a whole passel of kids. He's got 12 sons. And of those 12, it's specifically Judah that is singled out. Now those 12 become the 12 tribes of Israel, but it's specifically through Judah that God is going to trace this promise and this seed. And so we come to the New Testament. We learn that Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so there's the, um, uh, the Abrahamic covenant traced all the way through to the end of the book of Genesis through Abraham's descendants. Well, then we come to the Mosaic covenant. And so the Mosaic covenant is a huge thing, and I've given just a very little brief point of attention to it here in the Mosaic covenant because there's obviously a whole lot that can be said about the Mosaic Covenant. But only to mention one particular point here in that with the Mosaic Covenant, what was revealed was a whole series of types and shadows, types and shadows, all to illustrate the person and the work of this Redeemer, who this Redeemer would be, what he would be like, and what he would accomplish. Now, when we look at the whole Mosaic economy, all that God said to the children of Israel through Moses, we differentiate all of that law into three parts. We, we often refer to the, the tri-fold manifestation of the law. And so what are those three parts? How do we break down the law into those three parts? What are they? Civil, ceremonial, moral, okay? So the moral law 
we learned in our catechism, is summarily comprehended in what? The Ten Commandments. Okay? And so we've, we've gone through the moral law. We, we've discussed this um, way back over a year ago now in our Sunday school lessons, what is the gospel and what is sin. Sin is any transgression of or want of conformity to the law of God. And so we studied in detail the law of God. We looked at the origins of the law of God, the origins of the moral law, and the spirituality of the moral law, etc. Well, the moral law uh, summarized in those Ten Commandments. Along the way, while we were studying that, we talked about the civil law. What is the relationship? So if anybody remembers what I said, what is the relationship between the civil law and the moral law? Does anybody understand what I'm asking? What does the civil law and the moral law have in common? The civil law applies the Right. That's, ex- you, that's exactly and very well said. The civil laws that God gave to the children of Israel were just a, this is what the moral law looks like in real life. Okay, so the way I illustrate this, um, just very briefly, in Deuteronomy 22, you have to put a battlement on your rooftop. When you build a house, you have to put a handrail, basically, on your rooftop. Now, they used the top of their roof like we would use a back deck. That, that's the idea. And so God said, you put this handrail around your rooftop, for I am the Lord your God. Okay. Well, what that was teaching was a very practical application of the sixth commandment. And the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. Okay, So you don't want people falling off your roof. And so you need to put measures in place, reasonable measures in place, practical measures in place, to protect and to sustain life. And so you put a handrail so people don't fall off your roof. And so this is what keeping the sixth commandment actually looks like in real life. And so we can look at all the civil laws and make an application to one, but most of the time several, of the particular Ten Commandments. And God was teaching the children of Israel what it looks like to obey the law of God in in practical daily living. So moral and civil. The ceremonial law had to do with how they were to worship, what what processes and ceremonies, that's what we call it the ceremonial law, what processes and ceremonies they had to go through in the worship of God. Now, in the New Testament, we come to understand that those pedantic civil laws are done away with in Christ. We don't follow in that same way all those civil laws that God gave the children of Israel. They are completed in Christ. It's not that none of them apply. It's not that we, we refuse to follow local building codes that, what is it, 30 inches, you have to have a handrail? You're the deck expert. 30 inches, sure, whatever it is. You, you have to have a handrail, right? You, so, well, I don't follow that because Jesus did away with the law. Right? I, I don't, you know, that's not the point. We follow these laws as they are applicable in our time. Uh, and, and we can look at these Old Testament civil laws 
and we can learn and we can derive from them the point. And so the point of that about the rooftop was be mindful of your neighbor's safety. Don't do things that put your neighbor in danger. And so if a city building code has enforced that on me, fine. But yet, as a Christian, I enforce that on myself. I do things on purpose that don't put my neighbor in jeopardy, right? So because I want to obey the sixth commandment. The ceremonial laws also are done away with because Christ has fulfilled those, and that's more specific. But the point and the the thing that we learn here in the Mosaic Law, and I just have an A, and I know when you do an outline you're supposed to have an A and a B, um, but I don't have a B, I just have an A. And that is the Redeemer will be an innocent substitute. Uh, That is the key lesson, the key takeaway from the Mosaic Covenant in the whole scheme of what we're tracing here, this promise of a seed. This, this redeemer, this seed of the woman that was promised way back in Genesis is going to be one that is an innocent substitute. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so Christ is that innocent substitute on behalf of his people, those that he represents, and he has died for for them. And so then we come fifth to the Davidic covenant, and for that I'll ask you to turn over to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 7. Ooh, we're going to hurry. 1 Chronicles 7, look at verse number 11. Yeah, I'm sorry. It says 17 in my notes, too. What a coincidence. <laughs> First Chronicles 17. I was looking at that verse, and that's not the right verse. 17. First Chronicles 17. Learning to read would be helpful. Okay. First Chronicles 17, verse 11. And it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, and so the Lord is speaking to David, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established for evermore. And so if we go back to Genesis, um, Genesis 49 and verse 10, remember we learn there that the Redeemer would have a scepter. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And so that's language of a king. When that was recorded for us in Genesis 49 and verse 10, there was no king that ruled over the sons of Jacob. There wasn't one. But the prophecy was that there was going to be one. Well, Saul became king, and then David became king. 
But God did not renew this covenant with Saul or through the line of Saul. It was given to and renewed through David. And so as it pertains to this Redeemer, we learn more specifically that this Redeemer will indeed be a king. Now, we should have figured that out from Genesis 49 about the scepter, but now we're told in more explicit terms that this Redeemer, this seed that's going to be raised up through the line of David, is going to be a king. And we also learn that this Redeemer will have an eternal kingdom. And so if we look at David's descendants, after David, did David build the Lord a house? That was one thing mentioned here in verse 12. David wasn't allowed to build the Lord a house. He was allowed to begin to make preparations for that. But it was Solomon that actually built the house. So we, we could look at Solomon, but we learn from Solomon that his throne was not established forever. He did not have an eternal kingdom. And so it's not Solomon that is the one that's in view because God promised that this Redeemer would have an everlasting kingdom. And we understand that to be none other than Christ. He is the one that has the everlasting kingdom. And so what we've learned so far, tracing all these covenants, is on the very back page here. By the time we get to David and and through this promise with David, we've really learned everything that we need to know about the identity of this promised Redeemer. So he's going to be God in the flesh, but yet still the seed of the woman. He's going to be virgin-born, and specifically from the family of David. He will be a universal Savior that is an innocent, sinless substitute. And Christ is the only one that fulfill those descriptions. And so we have this cohesive message through the whole Old Testament telling us who this Redeemer is going to be and what he is going to do. But then we come to Jeremiah's new covenant. And so let's turn to Jeremiah 31. We have just a few minutes. We'll wrap this up and bring this to a completion here. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31 and verse number 31. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them Unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And so there's been volumes and volumes and volumes written on Jeremiah's new covenant. 
But suffice it to say, in the very short amount of time we have left, that this new covenant is not new in the sense that it is brand new. It is new really in the sense that it is renewed. It is the New Testament grace application of all that God has said so far. And so in this new covenant, what we're led to is the fact that this Redeemer is going to do away with all of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. Because up to this point, Jeremiah, you remember, is writing really at the very end of the New Testament, just before the captivity. So there's, I'm sorry, the end of the Old Testament. He's writing up to the end, up to the captivity. And there's 75 years, maybe, of, of Old Testament that unfolds after Jeremiah writes. There's 70 years of captivity, and then uh, we have Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, with the return back to Jerusalem. And then that's the end of the Old Testament. That, that's, that's all we're told. And then there's the intertestamental period, and then the New Testament. So up to this point, Israel has always been laboring under the types and shadows of the Redeemer. Under Moses, God instituted these types and shadows. But all of those types and shadows were just meant to illustrate the work of what this Redeemer was going to do. And Jeremiah is looking forward to the day that those types and those shadows are gone and we live in the full light of the gospel of Christ who has come with this promise of forgiving their iniquities and remembering their sins no more. Because Christ would offer that final sacrifice, fulfilling all of those types and shadows. And so those Old Testament saints that heard the terms of these covenants all through the Old Testament we're looking forward to that promise of a Redeemer to come. We stand on the other side of the cross looking at the same thing. We're only looking backwards. They're looking forwards. We're looking backwards to the fulfillment of the same promise of a Redeemer that would come that would crush the head of the serpent, that would undo the curse of sin, that would save his people from their sins, just as the angel promised in Matthew one twenty one, of the coming of Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so that is covenant theology uh, in a nutshell. And obviously there's more that can be said of each of the individual points along the way. Uh, but hopefully that helps everyone here understand more of this bigger term, covenant theology. So we'll stop there for this morning. Um, Lord willing, next week we'll come to a different question. What does it mean? Um, and next Sunday morning, I plan to do a lesson on whether or not we should observe Lent. So that's a question for you to, to think about maybe this week. And so next week, that's what I'll be addressing. Should I observe Lent. Maybe you have friends that are observing Lent. And so should you be observing Lent? Why or why not? So we'll look at that next week, Lord willing.
Well, let's close in prayer now. Our Father, we do thank you for what you have taught us in the Scriptures. We thank you for the cohesive nature of your Word, that you made a promise, you renewed that promise, you repeated it over and over, and you fulfilled that promise in Christ. And we also thank you that this promise includes us, and we thank you that we are part of those families that you promised to bless. And we do pray your blessing on each family in our church, uh, each individual here. We pray, especially as we come into the worship service in just a few moments, that we would know your help and blessing upon us. Be with Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches. Fill him with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.